Hello, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast presented by High West Distillery. That was Utah's own Pixie and the Party Grass Boys kicking off this episode. Ski Utah's Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West's passion is crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. If you're visiting this winter, join me at one of High West's three must-visit locations in Park City and Wanship, just a short distance out of town. Welcome to our episode sponsors. A big thanks to Deer Valley Resort. We had some nice powder skiing this past weekend in the glades at Deer Valley. And welcome back to Level 9 Sports. Whether you live here in Utah or you're flying in for a vacation, Level 9 Sports is a family-oriented ski and board shop with four locations conveniently located across the Wasatch Front. If you visit pretty much any ski resort town today, you're likely to find a brewery, tap room, or a brew pub. It's part of the ski experience. But if you go back in time, only a few decades, it was quite different. Where did it all begin? Well, right here in Utah. Back in the mid to late 80s, Greg Scherf had a vision, starting with a small brewery in an industrial area of Park City. At the time, he was one of around maybe 50 microbreweries in America and the first in a ski resort. A few years later, he opened the legendary Wasatch Brew Pub at the top of Main Street, and the rest is history. From humble beginnings brewing a simple pale ale, today the tap handles at Wasatch turn out dozens of exotic brews for skiers. Today, Last Chair will chat with Greg Scherf about his brewery vision, innovative marketing, and the evolution of beers over the past 30 years. We're joining Greg in the bar at Wasatch Brew Pub overlooking the brewery he began back in the 80s. So grab a beer, sit back, relax, and enjoy this look at the evolution of Ski Town Breweries with Greg Scherf. Greg, welcome to Last Chair. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Tom. It's good to be here. I always like talking about beer and skiing for that matter. Nothing wrong with that. We are actually sitting in the bar right now at the Wasatch Brew Pub at the top of Main Street. And Greg, one of the things that uh, we want to talk about is beer as a part of the, the ski experience, the lifestyle mm -hmm. of it. We're going to go into your history a little bit at Wasatch here and the pioneering efforts that you put forward in the 80s. But talk a little bit, if you could, about the role that beer plays as a part of the hospitality aspect of a ski town. Well, before the whole brew pub, what we used to call micro uh, breweries in those days, now known as craft breweries, when I started in 1986, that, that phenomenon hadn't really gone off as part of a normal ski vacation. Uh, it soon became part of that, but anytime you're out to have fun, you're going to have a beer or a glass of wine or a cocktail. So skiing and beer were always natural um, partners, I think. And I also think, you know, the athletic part of, of skiing kind of lends itself to a beer afterwards um, or even, you know, uh, while, you're, while you're having lunch. So to me, um, you know, when you get the combination of a resort, Tom, where people are trying to have fun, skiing where you're trying to have fun, and beer, which is always fun, there, there, there's a good trifecta going on there. So you grew up in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. and uh, full disclosure, I did as well. <laughs> we, we grew up on PBRs and Miller. Miller High Life was my lager of choice. But 
what what brought you out to the mountains? Uh, how did you yeah. make your way from the Milwaukee area where you grew up and went to school yeah. to the Wasatch? Tom, the, it's, it's a little bit of a um, crazy-ass story because so many people that were drawn to Park City that we all know well and, and I grew up here with it because I, I came here as a 21-year-old, actually hitchhiked here from Milwaukee uh, after I graduated from Marquette University. And like a lot of people who just came here solely to, be, to ski or to become ski bums and to find a job and spend a couple of years, I really never skied growing up in Wisconsin. I had probably skied three or four times at, I can't remember the name of it, um, the small resorts. You could see the bottom of the run from the top of the run. Um, little Switzerland. Little Switzerland comes to mind. Um, and usually it was, and sometimes you'd go at night uh, and it'd be so f- flipping cold. And, you, you know, frostbite was, you talk about frostbite, like, yeah, you know, it's just like a, getting a cold or something, you know. Oh, yeah, I got a little frostbite last week. Or, you know, it was so cold and it just didn't lend itself. To, and, it, you know, and this, the snow was hard packed. And so I, I wasn't a passionate skier when I, when I was growing up in Wisconsin. And I didn't come to Park City because I was, I was, I came because of the mountains. I came because I had grown up in Milwaukee and I thought it was time to go west. And I, my brother had actually pioneered the, his way here from Colorado. And that's part of the attraction for me to come to Park City. And I came just really um, as, as an adventure. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't solely about skiing. When I got here, obviously, I can remember um, meeting people like Jan Wilking, who was a ski instructor. And he had to teach me how to ski because I really didn't know until I got here. So, yeah, once I got here, you know, I used to ski probably even, even in my hardcore working days, you know, just 40, 50 times a year. Not like some guys that were getting in 100. You know, I didn't get that in. But, but certainly part of uh, my experience here. So I got here in 1974 and went through a couple different careers, a reporter, photographer for the local paper, Worked a little bit in construction, didn't do very well in that. I worked for my brother. wasn't uh, really born to be a construction guy. Then I uh, ended up, I worked for the ski team for a year. Yeah, I want to hear more about that because I've never really talked to you about this, yeah. but you essentially had my job some years, yeah, decades cool. earlier. <laughs> That's being a little kind. My job, I worked for Karen Corfanta and Joan Chase, and they had put an ad in the paper. They were looking for someone to kind of uh, cover and, and try to create more exposure and, and, and more, you know, just basic race results and whatever, whatever we could drum up for the North America Ski Series. So not, I didn't get to go to Europe and cover the World Cup like you spent all those great years doing, but I went from, you know, from Mont-Tremblant in Canada to, to Whistler in Vancouver and a lot of resorts in between. And I had a Subaru, Subaru was a sponsor then, so I had, a, I had it all little Subaru wagon all decked out with uh, U.S. ski team logos. and, and uh, Those are pretty hot little cars. It was fun. And I, I had, I really put a, literally I would go, one year I'd go from, from Quebec to, to Vancouver. And that's a long drive. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And I got to know the kids that were racing. And got to, then in the Nationals, you know, I got to hang out with the, the mayors and, and some of those type of people. And this is way back. This is before we had the kind of success we've had since then. But you remember the days, well, before you even came. So back in, this would have been back in, I guess, the late 70s. Um, we didn't have a lot of race results, Tom. 
Oh, I know that. Even when I started in the 80s, it didn't have a lot of results. There was a period in between us where we did, but we sure didn't in that yeah. late 70s period. No, I mean, the, the mayors, you know, the, the first real, Phil was the first real absolute podium contender in, 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 you know, races. And before that, you know, if we got a guy in a top 10, we thought we had really had a successful outcome. You still follow that today, though. You I were do. just tell me about Michaela watching. Yeah, I knew. I really am into Michaela, you know, and, and uh, um, Lindsey Vaughn, and you know, all the, the skiers. And I just, I think people, uh, I think ski racing is, is such a terrific sport. I'm not sure why. I mean, you, you know what it does in Europe, of course. It just never. And your job was to try to beat it into people that ski racing and the U.S. ski team deserved your your support and deserved your your enthusiasm and 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 following. And you, you can tell me, you can fess up. That was a tough job to get ski racing sold in this country. It was a really tough job. And I, I feel good that we, we really did that. I mean, we really did get it done. And I feel particularly good about cross-country skiing. I mean, I started at the American Berkebiner in northern Wisconsin, as you know. And I worked in cross-country for years. And for 25 years, we were really awful. I mean, nothing was happening. And then it started to happen. And then it really started to happen with Keegan Randall and then Jesse Diggins and others. I was just reading a story today in the New York Times talking about the great renaissance that the U.S. cross-country ski team has had, particularly on the women's side. So, so I'm proud of those accomplishments, and they all emanated from well, You really did a great job for a lot of years, and that publicity you were able to get. And, and, and I guess, too, you, know, you were there for you know, the transition into snowboarding and all the rest of it. Yeah, it was, it was an exciting time. So, so, Greg, when you're forging your careers and you're going through all these different career pathways here in Park City, did you have any underlying passion for becoming a brewer? Well, you know, we were talking about another issue earlier, and we decided that honesty is always the best policy, I think. So the answer is yes, I was always a beer enthusiast. I had been a, a very accomplished home brewer. I had been a very enthusiast consumer. And my, my uh, sophistication in, in, in beer took a pretty big leap forward when I got to go to school in Europe for a year. And that changed my landscape because, as you mentioned, you know, growing up drinking PBRs seemed, you know, like a great beer. And it's, it, I still find myself getting a PBR here and there. So It's a functional beer. Yeah. And I drink a lot of it. But when I got to Europe, went to my first Oktoberfest, even the beers in Italy, um, you know, Peroni, then going to Germany and Austria, beer was just such a different experience in Europe. And they had taken it to a level before you know we had even thought about it in this country so that that really got my uh, interest so i was drinking imported beers and you know my friends were still you know drinking miller and pabst and and uh, i'd say oh you got to try this so the, the answer to your question yeah I, I was a beer enthusiast to cut to the chase starting the brewery first and then the brew hub to come was a combination of finding something that i could could execute as a vocation and an advocation. And that was a poem, there was a poem by Robert Frost that I had to read, I think, it might have been college, or it might have been even high school, but Robert Frost said, if you can, if you can combine a vocation with an advocation, you know, you'll, you'll have a happier life. And that, that was pretty, pretty simple, but it struck me as profound. So I had realized that I wasn't the world's greatest employee, so it'd be a good idea to start my own business. So I had a passion for two things. Being an entrepreneur, starting a business, 
and then looking for the right marriage with that business. You know, I think you and I are alike in that sense. I, mean, I spent my career working in a sport I absolutely loved, and I just look back so fondly on it. And I yeah. know that you do, you yeah. do as what well. If you, what if you were repping a car company? Wouldn't have been nearly as cool. No, it wouldn't have been as cool, would it? Or if you're selling beer. I mean, it's, and, but I think the other thing, Greg, and we'll get to this in a minute, you made it cool, too. I mean, you brought life to it that, that really it didn't have before. Well, it was really fun to be. So when I decided to start a brewery in Utah, I had a little bit of a push from a good friend, a college roommate, a guy named John Morris in Seattle. And for Thanksgiving 1985, he said, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? And I was a bachelor, and I said, I'm not doing anything, really. He said, well, come up to Seattle. I want you to connect with some old friends, and I want you to meet somebody else I've gotten to know pretty well. And I said, deal, you know, see you Thanksgiving weekend. So I went up to Seattle, and during that visit, I met a guy named Tom Bond who had started the Pyramid Brewery in, um, actually it was in Washington, but uh, it wasn't in Seattle. And I went to visit him, and then at that juncture, the lights kind of came on, and I said, well, if he can do it, maybe I could do it. Not fully appreciating the fact that I was going, I was living in a place called Utah where half the people don't drink beer. So, you know, that wasn't a really, I was, I was a philosophy major in in college, so I didn't have that real highly skilled business acumen, so that, I'll get to that later. So I, I saw what he was doing, and I said, can you help me get started? Can, you, you know, would you, can I hire you as a consultant? He said, yeah, I'll help you. you know, we had a really close mutual friend, and he was kind of the conduit. So Tom Bond would come out, and at that point, I went down to the Department of Alcohol Beverage Control here in Utah, in Salt Lake City, and said I wanted to uh, apply for a, a brewer's license and wasn't sure what the reaction would be and wasn't sure if it was even legal. And they were quite nice. They looked it up and said, yeah, you know, we had breweries here in Utah, you know, from day one, and we had the last one closed. It was the Fisher Brewery that closed in about 1965, I'm guessing, something around there. So they said, yeah, it's legal. You you can do it. We don't have an application because nobody's ever asked for one. But if if you can go through the paperwork and get the federal approval, in those days it was under the auspices of the BATF. If you can get the BATF, BATF to sign off on it, then we're good to go with you as a state. And I said, okay, so that, that was pretty seamless and I, I had to you know, go through a lot of paperwork. The federal paperwork was, was fairly intimidating in those days. Um, and then of course the next hurdle was to get some financing and put some money together to go ahead and to try to, in fact, um, put the business plan into action. So it wasn't that difficult on the federal side? It was laborious in the sense, it, it wasn't philosophically challenging, and it was certainly legal, a statute. It just was everything in duplicate, and, and it, was, it, it was long before there were um, computers to help out. So, but, you know, I, I'm not whining. It's just, it was just, I'm not a real dot the I's and cross the T's kind of guy, but there was a lot of that going on. Now, to give people a perspective, today, if you go into any ski town, you have breweries, tap rooms, brew yeah, pubs. Yeah. You probably yeah. in America, well, actually today, I know that today there are over 8,000 breweries around the country. How many do you think there were back in the mid-80s when you conceived this idea of Wasatch Brewery? I can't give you a really hard definitive number. I can take some wild ass guesses, but I can tell you one thing that's absolutely true. There were more breweries closing on an annual basis than, than there were opening. The mid-sized regional breweries were, were going out fast. Now, I don't know if you remember breweries like, you know, Gettleman back in Wisconsin. Pretty soon, they, you know, the big breweries were just 
really starting to merge and buying out the, the middle-sized breweries. And pretty soon, about 90% of the consumption in, in this nation were you know, the big five breweries, and, and, and they controlled the marketplace. So there was only, there was less than a dozen microbreweries in the country when I got started uh, in 1986. There was a couple, there, it really was a Northwest phenomenon. There were people in, um, in, like, in Kalama, as I mentioned, Pyramid, and then I'm trying to think of some of the other early ones. And the P- Portland people came on. Full Sail was early on. Portland Brewing that just went out of business, oddly enough, was early in. But, you know, even Sat Adams hadn't gotten started by then. Oh, of course, the, the, the greatest of all craft beers in uh, my, my Sierra Nevada, they were about two years ahead of me, a year or two ahead of me in Chico. They, they really blazed the trail for all of us. They, they proved that uh, in those days, microbrewed beer, as we now know as craft beer, could be good beer because the reality was all of us, when we got started, were making some beers that were really good and some beers that really weren't so good. Kind of like any business, though. you got to have a little trial and error. Well, we just didn't know what we were doing because nobody had done it before. So, I mean, we had a lot of on-the-job training, and we finally got more and more scientific and more and more trained, and we started going to beer classes around the, literally around the world and, and finding a higher level of, um, of brewing skills. If I look back on anything that I, I was a little slow on the draws, I had a philosophy that it's all about the marketing. And that's, that's fun to say, but the reality is it's got to, what we say, be in the bottle. You, the marketing is important, but the beer actually is probably more important, certainly. So you started out essentially in a warehouse district here in Park City. <laughs> out of yeah. town. Yes, there is one. <laughs> and it was actually out of town. You wouldn't yeah. say that today. But but when you started out, it wasn't a lineup uh, like today where you can go into any brewery or tap room and you've got 20, 25 different choices. How many beers did you brew right well, out for of the shoot? Uh, not a long time, but in the scope of things, the first year to two, we brewed one beer. Every craft brewery in those days started out with a pale ale. Now it might be an IPA, but in the old days it was a pale ale. Tended to have a little color, you know, almost amber, pale ale kind of coloring. That was the knockoff I did. Tom Bond taught me how to make. It was a pyramid pale ale. We had to ratchet it down a little bit for our liquor laws here in Utah, make it 4% by, by volume. So we made a pale ale, and that's all we made. It was, it was, it was called Wasatch Premium Ale. Really catchy name. <laughs> Later, we got a little more creative, but in those days, we just a little Wasatch Premium Ale. That was the beer we made. And then I thought, well, you know, the ladies would probably like a little lighter version or some other people that are transi- transitioning from uh, macro beers. So we came out with a beer we called Wasatch Gold, which was literally half two-row barley and half wheat barley, or wheat malt, I should say. That was a really light, wonderful beer. I sometimes think we should bring it back because it was just... Super light, minimal hop presence compared to what people are drinking today. Probably had like 10, 12 AB, ABUs, which is really almost minimal hops you could put in a beer. And it was really, uh, people really liked it because it, w- it was very approachable. And in those days, you know, part of the experience in 1986, uh, all of us, we, 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 one of the reasons we all got along together is, oh, the, we didn't mention the Widmere brothers too. They were one of the early ones up, up in, uh, in Portland. But we all kind of felt we were in the same business and that we had to develop people's palate you know so we whatever we could do to help each other in those days that really we, nobody had really had ambitions to get out of their local market so it wasn't like we were all worried about the competition so you know if, if you needed a part or you needed a source for something or you needed something you would just call up any of the local brewers in, in the country and they 
reach out to you. One of the things that struck me about this industry over the past decades is, for the most part, it does seem to operate as a family, and everyone growing together benefits each member of the family. I know that that's the way you ran your business here. How much has that helped, really, the boom in craft beer sales over the last decades? Early on, it was, it was a matter of surviving or not surviving, because, you know, you needed that kind of support. I can remember getting so much advice when I was desperate, you know, to know which way to go without that support. I'm not sure it's, it's quite as symbiotic as it was in the old days because the competition is, is significant because there's so many new breweries. I think there's still a real fraternal mentality among brewers, but it's not as, as the old days um, where you could really count on uh, people to just do almost anything to help you. And, and I think that's why we did survive and then it did eventually flourish. So you were brewing in the warehouse district here in Park City, but you had your vision of opening a yeah. brew pub. And brew pubs are commonplace to us now, but they yeah. really weren't back in the 80s, no, I were had they? This, this, I had this weird urge. It was called a survival urge. You know, I was losing money as a small brewery, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, I can't live off T-shirt sales forever. And I just couldn't get a volume um, that made any sense. And my, my friend Tom Bond said, oh, there's this... There's this concept they're doing in Northern California. It's called a brew pub, and you make the beer right on premise, and then you sell it to your customers right there, and you don't have any cost of packaging, and you don't have any cost to, with a distributor. And basically, it's just your ingredients and your, and your state and federal tax, and then you just put it in front of people. And, you know, basically in those days, if you, if you were selling a beer for $3, I'm not exaggerating, it could cost you 30, 30 cents to make. So that, that's why brew pubs became more and more popular besides just the, the love of beer and the passion for beer. When brew pubs worked, they were a good business. I'm thinking of our governor, or now senator in Colorado, uh, Winecoop, he, um, Hickenlooper, his brew pub was just killing it. He was one of the first, when I did some consulting, I'd say, you want to try to do a thousand barrels a year as a brew pub, and you'll, you can be assured you'll, you'll have a profitable business. I think back in Denver, back in the early days, like early 90s, they were doing two or 3,000 barrels at his brew pub there in Denver. And that just was, I, I could easily do the numbers on that because I knew what the cost were. And that was a significant business success. So yeah, brew pubs were, were novel, um, but they caught on pretty fast. Uh, there was always an issue in almost every state. And I had an issue here that they typically weren't legal because you have to take a look at it in the landscape. Who loses Who's the business that loses out when a brew pub is successful? It's the distributor. The distributor is cut directly and immediately out of the equation. And for whatever reason, I don't think anyone thought we'd be successful or we'd ever, ever have an impact on their business. But if we tried to pass a brew pub law today, the distributors would not be too understanding because the brew pubs have really impacted the, the volume of beer sold in a positive way, but that beer was being sold without, a, without the aid of a distributor. So as you are, you've started your brewery, I think you started brewing in 1986. Correct. It would be three years until this building yes. that we're in today would yep. open. As you looked for a location in Park City, and this is back in the olden days, <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot going on at that point. How did you choose <laughs> this location? How did you find this wonderful space? Have we, have we got a, a round of my favorite word yet, Tom? Serendipitous? <laughs> Many times. So this is a classic example. First of all, I was struggling. I had to get, get together, and if we want to talk about it at some juncture, how we got the brew pub law changed in Utah. 
getting the beer, you know, getting the beer brewery law changed, get beer liquor laws changed in Utah is, is usually a monumental achievement. But we'll talk about that later. But to, to answer your question, I was looking for some space. In those days, everybody knew everybody else: the mayor, the city council, planning staff. And in this case, we had a new city manager named Arlene Lobel. And somehow or another, it might have even been at a party or, you know, somehow she got wind of this idea of mine and knew that I was appealing to the state legislature to get the law changed. Well, she actually called me and said, listen, we're trying to add some, <laughs> we're trying to add some vitality to Main Street. You know, we've got so many businesses not op- opening and boarded up. Top of Main Street is particularly dead. You know, if you get that law changed... We have some RDA, Redevelopment Agency, property on Main Street. We're trying to get back on the tax rolls, trying to have, a, have it be more of a contributor. And if you can get that law changed, um, we'd be interested in talking to you about selling us our RDA property on Main Street. You know, Main Street's not a bad place to do business, you know. So I said, deal, you know. So we stayed in touch, and by some miraculous stroke of luck, the stars being aligned, we got the state legislature to make brew pubs legal in Utah. So I went back to Arlene and I said, deal's a deal. And she goes, absolutely. So she'd made me a deal that's embarrassing to even tell people because they're going to try to back charge me. But Arlene told me, she goes, okay, RDA says, you know, the city council functions as the RDA. So at the end of the meeting, they take off their city council hats and put on their RDA hats. So uh, as the redevelopment agency. And the deal was, and it was never public, I don't think I've ever said this before, certainly not in front of the microphone in front of me, but what the hell, Tom, old friend, Arlene told me, you get an appraisal, bring it in, and I'll sell it to you for half the appraised value. And that was because businesses were not opening on Main Street. And uh, I guess in her defense, I've, I've, uh, that was 1989, that is... Uh, 1989, what is that, 31 years of paying taxes on Main Street. Didn't, and, uh, and employing, we did a, a rough calculation of the number of employees we've had through here in 31 years. And if we're fully staffed, it's probably 60 to 75 people, you know, front and back of the house. Average turnover, you know, maybe a year and a half, two years. We've literally had thousands of employees picking up a paycheck here over 31 years. And a lot of taxes, both sales tax and so maybe Arlene got the better end of the deal. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be bragging. Well, I was thinking about that, that this, this has worked out really well for the city. I enjoyed your comments uh, about how businesses were boarded up and there were vacant lots and buildings here on Main Street. It's hard to imagine that today, but it really was like that in the late 80s. You could see that it was coming along, but man, it had a long ways to go. It really did. And, you know, my best friend... Jan Wilking, when I was first guy I met in town, and I was wasn't sure if I was going to be able to go the distance in Park City because I'd already dated the like 35 eligible women that were in town, and I was you know I was they had cut me loose, so I was like maybe it's time to push on. But he said, Greg, don't forget this is going to be a major ski resort someday. You know, in those days we just had the Park City Mountain Resort, and you know it was nice and everything, but it was just getting on his foot. We had a, we had a gondola which we thought was pretty cool, but um, he said, yeah. So today I kid him, I say, Jan, you are absolutely right. Park City was destined to become a major ski resort. 
It just took about 20 years longer than he told me it was going to take. But we did get there, didn't we? Well, you and Jan and many others were part of a great group of pioneering. Steve Daring. Yeah, the guys who just landed here, men and women who came from other parts of the country here to this, this little town and stuck it out through those tough times and built it to uh, what it is today. Let, let's look forward a little bit. Uh, once you got into this building and had... Uh, more capacity to brew, and mm-hmm. you, you now had a really different business model. One of the things that really stood out for you was your marketing. And I know you mentioned earlier that it isn't all about marketing, but in those early days in particular, you really made your brand stand out with some of the marketing moves you made. A couple of thoughts on that, Tom. One was, again, desperation. I didn't have a marketing budget per se, because I was usually trying to make payroll. So I had to come up with ways to promote the beer that had no really uh, serious cost involved. So the easiest way to do that was to be controversial and to get people to get the media to cover you and talk about you, and they did it for free. So if I created a beer, a polygamy porter, I had an article in The Economist. That didn't cost me a penny. I had, you know, front page, I was always stirring up trouble. And the, I had all the media, TV, print, radio, on my, on my Rolodex in those days, and I was going to do something irreverent, I'd just call them all up and tell them what time we were going to do it, and I'd, I'd get a, a, a you know, crowd to show up, and sure enough, we'd, we'd get the word out, and it fit right in the budget. So can you tell us a little bit of the origins of Polygamy Porter? It's one of your more notable beers, and it has a pretty interesting story on how it came about. Yeah, you know, honestly, it's a little embarrassing. The name is kind of silly, isn't it, Polygamy Porter? We had had a beer we were making that we branched out and I always liked porters and we were making a beer called Wasatch Honey Porter. And I really thought it was a terrific beer. It had its attraction. Porters are dark beers, but not heavily hops. So they're, you know, they're quite drinkable and poundable. And the story was that the Porter, you know, was a British beer and it was very thick and full of nutrients, but again, not, not a terribly hoppy beer. And the story goes that the porters that carried your, your baggage from the train, were porters and to keep them alive and full of nutrients that they'd give them this polygamy or I'm sorry they give them this porter beer so that's how porter became about and then we had this beer we called honey porter and I had thought we needed to get more creative with the name and I started coming I thought it was totally brilliant I had a beer for the porter it was called Rockwell's Porter which you know I thought because once I landed in Utah as a philosophy major I started to spend some time looking at the Mormon history and the Utah history and, and I knew a little bit about the founding principles in you know, Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. And then there was, they, um, after Joseph Smith was assassinated, they had a bodyguard for Brigham Young who was called Porter Rockwell. And he was, a, they called him also the angel of death because he'd slit you from ear to ear if you got in his way or Brigham Young's way. And that's what they, they called blood atonement. It was from ear to ear. And apparently he had a, either a brewery or a distillery up in Big Cottonwood Canyon. And he was a badass. And I thought, what a great name for beer. And I called the Utah Historic Society, and they said his, his image was public property. I could put it on the label with no cost or, or no trademark issues. So I started trying this out on, for size on people. And I went to a, a, a focus group. It would be a little too formal. But I went to a group of young kids downtown at a bar in Salt Lake and was buying them beer. And I, I gave them the, the, the porter, and I said, I want to call it. Rockwell's Porter is brilliant. And, you know, what do you guys think of that? And they all looked at me like I was a knucklehead. And then one guy raised his hand and he goes, 
I get it. You're talking about the American painter. And I go, no, I'm not talking about that guy. I'm talking about the angel of death. And I went back and said, forget that. Get the sledgehammer out. Polygamy Porter. That's the name. Who came up with it? You know, Tom, I, I don't, it was one of those names that just was used in a banner about it. I think I got credit for it. I don't know if that's fair or not. I think it was just a name. It, it worked for me. I don't know if I heard it or just got attached to it. I liked the, the little bit of irreverence to it because, you know, one of, the, one of the, we touched on this, but a lot of the beers, in fact, many of them, you know, whether it's Evolution Amber Ale or First Amendment or Polygamy Porter, I didn't, and even, even this year when, when we were having the, the Black, Black Lives Matter issues, I was like, yeah, you know, being a minority can really piss you off because I'm a minority. When I got to Utah, you know, growing up Catholic, white, Anglo-Saxon in the Midwest, I didn't, I had, I didn't understand that what minorities went through. I didn't understand that, you know, they were basically uh, nominalized and, and ignored and invisible. When I got to Utah, I, I knew what, what, being a minority, and it pissed me off. So whenever I could poke fun at the majority, it was, it, was just in my, it was just in my nature to do that because I was, I was an angry minor, minority. And I didn't like the fact that the Utah legislature was 93% Mormon and they controlled, you know, you can have a Bloody Mary at 12, but you can't have it at 1145. And you can't make a beer that's 4.5%. It has to be under 4%. So I just thought, like, like all minorities, that the lack of freedom was annoying. And that was part of my part of my stimulus and part of my attitude was, okay, I'm a minority, so, you know, and when they, I had a guy call me up and ask me to, when I came out with Polygamy Porter to quit making it. And I said, well, no, I'm not going to do that. And, and I said, you know, polygamy is still practiced openly in Utah and certainly in other parts. And it's part of the Utah history. I'm not making anything up. That's not true. Polygamy is part of who Utah is. I make a beer in Utah. I'm calling it Polygamy Porter. And he went on and on, and I listened politely for a bit. And then I said, well, listen, I suggest you do what I do when I'm not in agreement with an advertising program. He said, well, what's that? I said, I simply don't buy it. And he never bought a beer in his life, so that didn't really work for him. He couldn't stop buying Polygamy Porter because he never had one. And what I used to tell my advertising friends, that you know, the beauty of being in Utah and doing what I was doing was no matter – it was really an easy – to be honestly – it was really easy because most marketing projects have to straddle the line to not offend somebody but attract somebody. I didn't care about offending anybody because my customers weren't offended. And the people that I offended would never buy my beer. So you can't lose a customer you'll never have. So you took that irreverence and carried it across your line of, of beers. I want to go to the 2002 Olympics, mm-hmm. and you, you, you had another interest, serendipitous again. And again, utilization of the news media, you were a PR genius, but you decided to not be a sponsor yeah. of the Olympics. I think that was a catch-22 um, love affair I had about, you know. So I decided that Budweiser was coming into town, and they had provided a $50 million sponsorship towards the, I guess it went to the U.S. organizing committee. Part of, maybe it went to the IOC as well, part of it. But at any rate, they, they had all the rights inside the fences. So I came up with an idea, and I said, well, you know, obviously I can't be an official sponsor of anything, but I, I, I decided I'd be the unofficial sponsor. So I came out with a beer called the 2002 Unofficial Amber Ale, and I had the international symbol of 2002 with a line through it, and, and said underneath it, unofficial 
sponsor. And then I got a letter. I got a letter with more uh, legal firm listed on it than I ever imagined was possible. One was from the IOC, and the other one was from the USOC, saying cease and desist. You know, we're going to sue your ass to Kingdom Come. Quit making that beer. I can remember I kept ignoring them and making the beer anyway. They kept sending these letters. And finally, this guy from a big law firm in D.C. called me up, and he goes, he was talking to me, and I was laughing at him, and he goes, I need to talk to your lawyer. I said, lawyer? He goes, yeah, I need to talk. Who's your, who's, who's, who, what firm are you working with? I said, I'm not working with any firm. You can talk to me. That's what I got. And he goes, no, I, you know, who's your legal representative? And I said, do you think I'm going to turn free advertising into paid advertising by paying some lawyer to get involved? It's me, pal. Then what happened then, Tom, you, you can relate to this. We were going back and forth, and I'd have, I would, so here's the Catch-22 part of that. I would say I'm not the sponsor. I'm not claiming to be the sponsor. That would be, that would be wrong. I'm not the sponsor. I'm, I'm saying that unequivocally. I am not the sponsor of the Olympics. It's right on the can. Yeah, I'm not the sponsor. They said, you can't say you're not the sponsor. I said, that's where the Catch-22 came in. So it was like, I'm not the sponsor, and I'm telling you I'm not the sponsor. And their response was, you cannot say you're not the sponsor. And I said, well, well, I'm not saying I am the sponsor. And they said, you can't even say you're not the sponsor. So this was going in circles, and it was just fun, more fun all the time. And then we, we talk about the, the Clydesdales and the, and the Budweiser, beautiful Budweiser um, coach coming down Main Street every day. That's another part of the story. But what happened, and, and this, again, was serendipitous, in the middle of this whole rhubarb, can you remember what happened, Tom? A little scandal. Your, and, you, and your scandal became an even smaller scandal. Exactly. But let's be clear, you were not the sponsor of the 2002 Dude, Olympics. No, I wasn't. I'm, well, with I Greg, <laughs> I'm with Greg Scherf, the pioneer brewer from Wasatch Brewery. When we come back, we'll talk about the evolution of beers over the last few decades. We'll be back after this short break. What great history on how craft breweries came to ski towns, and it all began right here in Utah. This past weekend, we had another nice powder dump and more coming uh, every day this week across the Wasatch, which made for some nice glade skiing at Deer Valley Resort. This season is Deer Valley Resort's 40th anniversary, and what a major role it has played here in Park City, a legendary resort that still has the same feeling of the sport that Stein Erickson brought here 40 years ago. Deer Valley revolutionized skiing by offering first-class service in the mountains 40 years ago, and that tradition continues today. Its commitment to exceptional dining experiences has not changed during these unprecedented times. To keep guests and staff as safe as possible, day and evening indoor dining operations have been altered with tables spaced for physical distancing and limited capacity. Reservations are required, but it's an easy process. Just go to DeerValley.com. While things will feel a little different this year, Deer Valley's dedication to providing an exceptional guest service experience remains exactly the same. Watch for me when you're skiing at Deer Valley Resort in Park City this winter. So now let's get back to the podcast as it's time for Greg and I to do a little beer tasting here at the Wasatch Brew Pub. Hey, 
and we're back with Greg Scherf now at the Wasatch Brew Pub on the top of Main Street in Park City, Utah. And we've been talking about the pioneering efforts of Greg and the entire craft brewing industry. And now we want to talk a little bit about the evolution of beers. And Greg, let's first go back to when we were growing up in Wisconsin and all we drank were PBRs and Millers. Yep, pretty much it. And an import to me in Wisconsin was when somebody <laughs> went to Colorado and brought Got back a truckload back. of Coors. That was an import <laughs> that beer. Was a, that was getting sophisticated back then. So beers have evolved a lot from a fairly simple time when you opened Wasatch Brewery back in the in the 80s to where we are today with so many different, and I must say, really delicious uh, choices. But Start us out with where you were back in those days, and uh, what's the? We're going to also do a little tasting here, which is yeah. one of the nice aspects of doing a podcast like <laughs> this. So, uh, where are we starting out, Greg? What's the first beer we so, have to try? Okay, so we're going to start kind of uh, as you do in most tastings, or at least I did when I when I was in front of uh, groups. Is that you start with the lightest beer? It's kind of similar, I guess, that they do in wine tastings before you get too big. So we're drinking. One of the lightest beers we make. It's called Wasatch First Amendment Lager. It won the gold medal in the 1991 Great America Beer Festival as a gold medal winner. It is. Um, it has. It, it it has a story behind it. Tom uh, First Amendment Lager. You know, I've always been kind of a progressive hippie type guy. So talking about um, First Amendment, you know, was was not foreign to me. But what had happened here in Utah give a little context before we talk about the ingredients here, is I had been coming out with a number of irreverent ad campaigns. I did one where Wasatch Beer is Utah's other local religion, baptize your taste buds. They, they didn't really think that was that funny. So the legislature got together and decided that they, they, and I, they had a committee meeting and they were going to introduce a new beer tax, an excise tax, and they had one guy had actually one of the sponsors had suggested that it just be imposed upon Scherf Brewing Company and Wasatch Beers, which was totally ridiculous because you can't tax. Yeah, just tax him. You know, forget that everybody else. We don't like that guy. We'll tax him. And that just really pissed me off. And I I couldn't afford to sue him, so I didn't have any other recourse that I could afford. So I came out with a beer called First Amendment Lager, and it was um, a beer that we we dressed up in colonial costumes and dumped. I think it was eight kegs into the Great Salt Lake, kind of as, as a knockoff of the Boston Tea Party. And we, we poured the beers in, and we would say, I had a Benjamin Franklin costume on, and I'd say, give me liberty or give me a cold one. Or taxation without representation is Utah. And we drove them crazy. So then we had to actually commemorate it with a beer. So this is the beer we're drinking. First Amendment lager was a protest beer, first and foremost. It's a good beer. Yeah. Cheers. It's really, thank you. It's a, it's a nice beer for those that aren't IPA or aren't, you know, big, heavy beer drinkers and just want a nice, this is, this is, like I said, I won the gold for American lager is what the category was. So toast. Cheers. Very poundable. It's very nice. nice. It's kind of a knockoff of PBR a little bit, isn't it? Um... I guess you could. I guess you could say that. But I mean, it's pretty. It's an American style lager. It, 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 it has minimal. It has, I'm guessing, twelve or thirteen, hop, uh, IBU international bitterness units, and um, never meant to be anything more than just a quaffable uh, lager. Um, like I said, it, I, 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 I'm not the least bit uh, confused about saying it. It was born to be a protest beer. 
Well, it's a good beer. And we've got another one. And what's the next one up, Greg? The next one we're drinking is uh, a Hefeweizen, which is a kind of an evolution. It's also another uh, mildly hot beer as we move up the ladder. Uh, Hefeweizens became popular by the brewery in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, Woodmere, which went on to great success. Two brothers, uh, Kurt, I knew the best. And uh, I can remember walking into their brewery in Portland, and they were coming out with the very first Hefeweizen. This was probably in 1987, 86, 87. And they went on to just sell a boatload of that beer and introduced the U.S. consumer to Hefeweizen. They were the first ones. Um, and then Tom Bond started making it and taught me how to make it. And we started making this beer in, in the late 80s. I had people bringing it back into the brewery saying, there's something wrong with this beer. And I'd say, well, what do you mean? And this, this one is, 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 is a little bit clear for a Hefeweizen. Usually they get a little cloudier. This one must have been uh, settled out for a bit. But, you know, traditional Hefeweizen was made, and the Germans made it, typically in the summertime as, as, as a real um, summer beer. And then it became popular, and I'm sure it's made year-round. But the, the Windmere is the pyramid. Um, not so much Ken Grossman at um, Sierra Nevada. They, they didn't, it wasn't his, uh, he, was, he was a pioneer and our leader in so many ways. But in this case, the Hefeweizen phenomenon was really owned by the Woodmeres. I actually t asked them how to make it, and they, they used an ale yeast. We, we, we didn't. I'm sorry, they used a, a lager yeast, I believe. But, um, no, they were using an ale yeast. And, but they were very, they didn't tell me exactly how to do it, but they, they gave me a pretty good indication of which way to go. Well, Hefeweizen has been one of my very favorite beers, and there's nothing like going to a brewery in Munich and having a Hefeweizen really right out of the tap. Well, and This is a good one. Cheers to you, Greg. Yeah, this is a good one. This is the Wasatch Hefeweizen, yeah. Does Niels make this downstairs? Okay, so we're going to drink another one here. Let's, uh, it's, it's, it's appropriate to have this on the bitterness hop presence because this is a very mild... Gotta love that song. You got a glass there, Tom. This is a good story. This one I, I'm actually pretty proud of. What's, what's though, the beer here? This is the Polygamy Porter. And originally when it came out in 2001, we can talk about the, again, the serendipitousness of the Olympics coming in 2002. We came out with this beer and created a, quite a bit of stir. This was when the internet was just getting started. And we were up here in the room at time. We had all our servers coming in early to pack FedEx boxes with Polygamy Porter t-shirts to ship off to New Zealand, Japan, Europe, Texas. We sold more Polygamy Porter t-shirts. You can still see, you don't see them as much anymore because most of them are rag, ragged and tattered, but in the day we had a sweatshirt, a long sleeve tee and a t-shirt, and we just sold the bejeebies out of it. But what happened was we got all this publicity and we came out with it in October of 2001. And then oddly enough, in 2000. In, in February of 2002, there was this crazy event that went off called the 2002 Winter Olympics in Park City, Utah. So our timing, again, people say, well, your timing was really exceptional because all these people were visiting. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I guess. But I, really, well, I, didn't, I didn't have that planned out at all. It just happened that way. It wasn't. You'll take again, credit, though. Not, I can't even take credit of it. But this beer we're drinking now, we, we it evolved. Um, this is a nitro porter. Was your original one on nitro? No. 
And it took our guys, a guy named Adam Curfew, our head brewer, now general manager down in Salt Lake at the brewery, brilliant young guy. He put his expertise to work to figure out, because the way the Guinness used to, you know how, what a beautiful experience drinking Guinness is? Yeah, smooth. And they have what they used to call a widget in the bottom of the can. I think they had it in the bottle as well, that when the pressure was changed as you opened it, the, the, ox, the nitrogen widget would implode or explode and release the nitrogen into the beer, and you'd end up with this incredibly creamy, rich head foam. And the beer being carbonated with nitrogen is so much less filling than CO2. So I always said, did the Irish invent nitrogenated beer um, because they spent so much time in the bar and they couldn't fill themselves up with too much CO2? Or did the nitrogen beer just make the, the, the Irish guys hang out in the bar all day because it was so good? I don't know which came first, but together there was, it was a good marriage. But So the first time I really got a little tipsy, I was with my parents in Ireland. I was 16 years old, and my sisters weren't big beer drinkers, so they got a taste and then gave me theirs, so I got to drink three of my sister's beers. And, uh, you know, and I, that, that, again, you talked about beer evolution. Going to Europe and, and, and going to Ireland and drinking a Guinness at a pub was not exactly drinking Pabst in Milwaukee. No, a, a much different story. I remember uh, my wife Carol and I were over in Ireland, and we went into a little pub the first night that we were there. And I started to count how many Guinnesses the guys in the band put down that night. It was staggering, but it's so smooth going down. Well, here's another just a little aside. Again, who created who, how, what, what preceded who? Polygamy, oh, I'm sorry, Polygamy Port. Um, Guinness uh, Stout is a very uh, seriously beautiful beer, but it's very low in alcohol. It's only about 5.5, typically ABV, and people think, you look at it, and you think this beer has got to be just a knockout punch but if you're going to sit on a bar stool in Ireland and drink all day, you can't drink a 10% ABV or you'd fall off after two beers. Yeah. So the alcohol, the lack of bitterness, the lack of CO2, and the rich, foamy presentation made that beer such a classic. Well, I, I love nitro beers, and, and polygamy on nitro is just it's heavenly. The best. It's you, heavenly. You know, do you, you know what I'm saying about not being filling? You know, you drink it in... You know, as we get older, you get you, you drink a couple of beers and you feel like you you know you're, you're filled up, but a nitro beer just doesn't give you that same CO2 gut. You know, this is a little bit different, but one of my favorites is the jalapeno cream ale. Yeah, how is that brewed? That's here. We brewed here right here at the pub because you know it's not a, a mainline production beer. Um, it's a pain in the ass because we use you know real jalapenos that have to be prepped and deceited and I think they get blanched a little bit before they go in to the, the kettle. That beer has one of the more passionate followings than any beer I've ever made because the people that like it, I'm, I'm kind of a gringo when it comes to peppers and jalapenos, so it's not my go-to beer, but I got guys that tell me if we ever stop making it, I better get protection because they're, I mean, some people just Honestly, jalapenos and beer, I, I, I don't consider myself a traditionalist, but that's, that's a little bit fast forward. So I have to tell you, though, Greg, I am a fanatic that you shouldn't put fruit 
in beer. Oh, my. We were brought up that I, way. And I, first, exactly. If Ken Grossman thought I'd ever put fruit in the beer, he probably would have broken my kneecaps. But you put apricot in Hefeweizen. And before that, raspberry, remember? Yeah, and it worked. Okay, and that's but fine. It was very, it was very <laughs> un-German of us. It was. But I have to say, I, I, I love that jalapeno cream meal. Okay, we've still got yeah. three more cans yeah, to yeah. go through. So, so we're just going to move next? on here. We'll save the IPA for a bit. Let's go to a, a beer that we make spe uh, specifically for the skiers. We had some different names over the years, but now we're just called, calling it Wasatch Winterfest. It's a, it's a beer that's supposed to go with what you would expect to drink next to a fire after skiing. So the idea is when you get skiing, you, you, know, you don't need a, a Coors Light. What you're looking for is something you can hang out in front of the fire or sit in the hot tub. And this beer's got a little oomph to it. It's pretty complex, wouldn't you say? Boy, this is nice. Yeah. I've not had this one before. Yeah, this, this has just been tweaked by, by um, Neil's, um, our brewmaster. This Neil's is aborted. a Wasatch Wonderful Winter Beer. I must say I highly recommend this one. It is complex. There's yeah, a lot going on. It's got a little uh, that, I wouldn't call it burnt, and I wouldn't call it smoky, but it has a little bit of that earthy cabin. I think it, it goes well when you're sitting by the fire. Your brewmaster up here, Niels, Im Niels, Niels Imboden. Imboden. Mm -hmm. I've, I, I don't know Niels, but I've listened to him talk before about uh, the beers here. Well, I'll just give a little background. People that know Park City and know Adolph's, it's Adolph's son. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and, and I, what I love about these guys who are, and, and women as well, who are brewing beer now is the creativity and the passion that they're putting into it. And you did as well at the start, but they're bringing in new vision and new horizons. No. It's unbelievable. I mean, the brain power, of course, passion is a easily used word. I mean, passion, the, the know-how. Niels is, you know, he's got a master's in engineering and he's been brewing beer, you know, he won so many contests as a home brewer over the years. And, and believe me, when people think of home brewing, you think, oh, home brewing, because my beers weren't exactly something you'd want to make a, go out of your way for. But today, the home brewers around the country, around the world, really, have such a level of expertise and have such a, a network and are so incredibly good. I mean, uh, and Niels was, exact, he, he, he was so impressive. I was at Adolf's for dinner one night, and he was around, he'd always, we'd always, Annoy, we'd always annoy my wife because we'd end up talking for a half hour about beer when we were, my wife and I were supposed to be having dinner. But I said, Niels, you know, why don't you just come work for us? And he goes, seriously? I said, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I can guarantee you a job. Just, you know. So he went to work for us first in Salt Lake, and then it really is a much better fit for him to be at a brew pub because his creativity can come out. And we make so many beers, and some of them we just make for, for consumption here at the pub. So, I mean, he doesn't have... And then the ones that... I, we have a little small canning line downstairs, so the beers that, that, that we feel like uh, bringing to, to market, we can always can and put in kegs. But a lot of the beers we just serve right here. Well, he, he does a masterful job. So that was Wasatch, Wasatch's Wonderful Winter. Okay, we got two more to go, Greg. What's up next? Well, we're going to go ahead and move on to uh, a new beer that kind of fits into our ski beer theme. It's called Snowbank. Snowbank. So we have some nice carbonation on this snowbank, a little bit lighter. So even though I, I can't claim, I mean, I'm, 
my father was German, my mother was French, but so I don't really have any credentials as a German-style brewer. But I did grow up in a German community, in a German household, and I, I fell in love with beer in Germany. So the Germans, as you know and appreciate, really put a high value on foam. If you go to any place in Germany and you get a beer without foam, it'll just be returned. Because the and to me, the aesthetics and, and to an extent, the aroma and the flavor and the, the presentation, you look at a beer like this, Tom, versus a beer that has no head on it, you go, well, why would you want to drink that? When this foam is just... A, a, and to me, if I was judging a beer, the presentation and the ability for the foam to be maintained and to create what's called legs as you work your way down the glass is a big part of the beer experience. I mean, I, I, all the bartenders and servers here laugh at me and they go, you know, you, I never get too involved with day-to-day you know, operations, but when I see beer sit at, at the bar at the server station waiting to be picked up and they lose their, their head or their foam, it just really drives me nuts. Well, I remember going back to my days in Wisconsin and my grandfather would pour a beer and it always had a head. And you've created a great head on this. This is a, an amber lager. I have to read the back. Crisp, this is a- crisp, malty, clean. When the snow starts to pile up, it's time to reach for the delicious malty notes of Snowbank Amber Lager. So we have one more to go. Yeah. And we're closing out with uh, well, just an IPA. Yep. Yeah, we're going to do an IPA. This is kind of a, a, a back to basics IPA. It's not what, what some of the, Cal- or the West Coast IPAs or the. Um, this is a good old IPA. And if, when I, we, we made the first IPA that I certainly that I'm aware of before Ken Grossman in Sierra Nevada, before Pyramid, before anybody else, we were making an IPA back in. It came out actually under our squatters label. That's another story, the squatters Wasatch relationship. But our first IPA that we sold was a was under the squatters label, and it was really uh, forward for those days because people weren't drinking IPAs. So when I was selling it, I probably told the IPA story at least seven thousand eight hundred times to tell because I always go back to that basic in marketing you got to have a story right so the story the ipa everybody knows at this point india pale ale but um it it really became ipas and their involvement um over the last i don't know certainly 20 but really accelerated the last 10 i mean I would venture to, I mean, there are breweries that only make IPAs. You look at like a Lagunitas or some of the other breweries. I mean, and we probably make three or four different IPAs. So to say that IPAs have found a home in craft brewery would, would be uh, an understatement. Craft, um, I would venture to say some, some form of an IPA is craft brewer's best-selling beer, typically, and... I wish I could put my hands on the statistics of what IPA does in the, in the ranking of, of lagers and ales and Hefeweizens. I, I'm just going to be um, say that IPAs rule 
in the craft beer industry right now? I remember, and this was probably 20 years ago, I was in Vermont at a small brewery, and there weren't very many of them around at the time. And one of my friends, a former ski coach, John Caldwell, introduced me to IPAs and told me the story of how the name came about and so forth. And it was, it was a good beer. It was different. It was certainly very, very bitter. It was one of the old raw IPAs of, of old. But it's blown me away to see how it's really, really taken over the market now in the last five to ten years. Isn't it unbelievable? So this one, um, is, like I said, is kind of a throwback in the sense that it's not... 9% uh, alcohol by volume, it's, it's not 110 IBUs, it's, it's, you know, I think it's 6% alcohol and probably 75, 80 IBUs, so it's, it's, it's compared to what you might have, as a, when you consider this a mild IPA? Uh, this, yeah, this is mild and very drinkable, it's not very bitter, really, not at all. No, I mean, but I think if we had had this when we were growing up, we would have thought it was bitter. That may be, but this one is really quite drinkable. So this is the Our Share IPA. Yeah. We haven't talked about that story. Yeah, that's a knockoff that my friend, when we did, we, we were talking about marketing. The only marketing we had when we opened was we, we, we had a poster. And posters were kind of, uh, you remember when you had posters in your bedroom of rock stars and football players? So posters kind of were part of the culture <laughs> 100 years ago. People had posters. So I came out with a poster with our first brewmaster, and it was just the two of us. And uh, Steve Deering was my good friend who also ran an advertising agency, which uh, he never got a chance to bill me much. But he came up with the slogan, we drink our share and sell the rest. So we, we had myself and our brewmaster, Melly, on the, on the poster, and underneath it says, we drink our share and sell the rest. And it's, the, the entire Sheriff Brewing Company staff is happy to present Wasatch Beers. A little bit of their share back to us. Yeah. Well, cheers to you, Greg. Yeah. It's funny that, so one time when we couldn't keep up, once the market started to evolve and we were starting to have a little more demand for our product, we couldn't keep up for a bit. I can remember someone calling me up from Snowbird, the food and beverage director, and said, Sheriff, I'm so tired of you. You know, we haven't had your beer here for, for a month in the middle of the ski season. And, you know, we were told by competitors, told them that because we kept all the beer for Park City, we wouldn't sell it to Little Cottonwood Canyon. And I said, that's not true. It's <laughs> whoever gets the order in. I don't, I don't really. But uh, he said, well, you, I can't. he goes, you think you're so funny. You drink your share and sell the rest. You're drinking more than your share. <laughs> and, I, and I'll bet he got his order in then. <laughs> Well, Greg Scherf, it's been a joy to have you here and talk through the evolution of beers. We have a few more questions in this final section that I call Fresh Tracks. Uh, a few short, simple questions for maybe to tax your brain a little bit to pick some personal favorites over the years. And uh, the first one, we did talk about this a little bit earlier, but where did you begin skiing in Wisconsin? Little Switzerland. Little Switzerland. And, and just for the listeners, if you've not been to Wisconsin or Little Switzerland, it doesn't bear a whole lot of resemblance to Switzerland, does it? You could, when you got off the lift, you could see the start of the lift at the bottom. But you could get a lot of runs in in a day. You could get a lot of runs in. You could, you could get frostbite like in four or five runs easy. Much nicer here. Your favorite Utah ski run? Well, because... Some friends, I took s such a yard sale on it at Deer Valley. They renamed the ruins of Pompeii 
the ruins of Gregorio. It was a powder day, and I just ate it, and it took me an hour to, to find a ski. But when it was good, it was a really good run on a powder day. You know, I have never liked that run. Really? You no. like the dip? It dropped, no. and then it went back. Probably because I heard about the ruins of Gregorio. <laughs> That's a tough run. Of all of the Wasatch Brewing marketing campaigns, and you have had many, which one is your favorite to look back on? I would say, I mean, can I rephrase a little bit, Tom, and you say sure the can. one I'm most proud of? The polygamy Porter, honestly, is, is a little silly, and it was fun to poke fun at the Utah culture. But I, for me, as a, as a political activist, even to this day, I'm a very political guy. The First Amendment lager, to me, as a protest beer, had significance and made a statement and and I thought it was an appropriate response to a, a tax initiative and I thought it was it was in, in Utah where as a minority you know our first amendment rights are often not fully appreciated so I guess the, the, the first amendment and then getting to dress up like Ben Franklin for all the events we did I, I can't beat that you know, I've, I've always thought, Greg, I would have enjoyed being your PR guy. You guys had a lot of fun. I couldn't have paid you, though. You wouldn't have liked it. No, but you could have given me free beer. <laughs> free beer. So, Greg, I have two questions I ask every one of my guests here on Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. And the first one is, what's your favorite Utah craft beer? Uh, well, you know, because I, I'm old school, you know, I'm 68, and I grew up drinking... It was beer uh, was legal at 18 in Wisconsin, and if you were 18, that meant you could drink at 16. So I drank a lot of beer uh, for my lifetime. I've enjoyed the whole evolution that we talked about and tasted today, from starting out with you know with Hefeweizens and moving up to all the complex IPAs going off today. I guess this would be uh, you know this is not contemporary. This is just historical. Hefeweizen, like you said, you liked having when you were in Germany. To me, on a hot day, a Hefeweizen presented with a, lime, a lemon slice is, the, is as refreshing as beer can get. Served in the proper glassware. That too. With a nice three, what I would, three-finger head, three-finger foam. Exactly. You know, every time I go to Germany, I make it a goal to bring back one or two Hefeweizen glasses because you just don't, you don't see them here. No, we, we used to sell them in our shop. I don't know if you remember. And then finally, groomers, moguls, glades, or powder? God, I'm so old. It took me, coming from Wisconsin, it took me a, a, a lot of nosedives to be able to ski a decent powder run. Glades... Um, and, and then, you know, being fortunate to ski Deer Valley with all those groom runs for all those years, I mean, that, that made you feel like you could really ski better than you actually could. I got to be honest, I had my best runs on groomers because I've, I felt like I was Stein out there making a turn, big GS turn on a, on a groom run at Deer Valley. That's the most important thing, as long as you feel like you're Stein. Yeah. Remember that? You just see him make those big GS turns. It was amazing. Greg Scherf, pioneer brewmaster from Wasatch Brewery. It's been Old an fart. No. no, 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 no. You're still going strong. Uh, it's been an honor to talk to you today, hey, Greg. Don, and walk we've known this. each other for a long time. We've got the cheesehead thing going for us, but I've always admired what you did for the U.S. ski team and brought that program to the successes that they're 
enjoying you know today is especially with Michaela uh, in particular you had a lot to do with so toast to you hey cheers thank you Greg It's been exciting to watch the growth of craft beers, especially knowing the role that Wasatch Brewery played in its history right here in Utah. Thanks to Greg Scherf for giving us a tour and talking about the evolution he's seen in beer and the role it plays in skiing. This episode has been brought to you by Deer Valley Resort in Park City, anxious to get out to make a few more turns there tomorrow. And welcome back to Last Chair Sponsor Level 9 Sports with four locations from one end of the Wasatch to the other. With ski and snowboard gear, it really pays to visit a shop and talk to the experts when making choices, whether it's a new pair of skis or an upgrade to your goggles. And with the big powder dumps we've been having this week, maybe it's time to check out those skis you wanted but didn't get from Santa this year. You have a lot of choices in shops here in Utah. What I really love about Level 9 is its approach to families. Let's face it, outfitting your family with skis, boots, jackets, and more can be daunting. Level 9 recognizes that and has implemented programs to not only make the process easier, but also helping with the impact on your wallet. Visit its website at level9sports.com. That's level9sports, spelled out, dot com. Check out the Ski Learn Center and the Teaching Children's sections, a wealth of how-to videos that will help walk you through the process. You can find Level 9 Sports at four locations, including Orem, Mill Creek, downtown Salt Lake City, and in Ogden. Stop by and tell them you heard it on Last Chair. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the like button and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back with plenty of guests throughout the entire season. Now let's turn it over to Pixie and the Partygrass Boys to close out this episode of Last Chair. From all of us at Ski Utah, have a great time on the slopes. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It's a great day to ski. Until I can ski.